Tonight, we're talking about Q&A. Our first question is on God's will, how to know or find or do God's will, specifically in the context of not knowing when you have multiple options. You have, you have lots of things you could choose from, and you're not sure which one you should choose. Um, how do you discern that? Well, before you get into the unknown things, before we go into the secret will of God or trying to discern God's mysterious will, you need to first consider God's revealed will. God's revealed will is just uh, one way of saying the Bible. In the Bible, we find God's revealed will. We find God's, uh, what, what God tells us. He says things like this, and this is uh, the will of God, even your sanctification. So in that verse, he says, my will for you is that you be sanctified. And in that verse, I believe it's in 1 Thessalonians, it says that you would abstain from sexual immorality. And he carries on saying more things that is God's will. So God's will is revealed to us in the Bible. And the more you know the Bible, the more you will know God's will. The more you know the word of God, the more you will know what God wants. We call this God's revealed will. This whole situation is fairly simple. It's fairly straightforward. It's not rocket science. Because, in part, we believe in the thing called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture means the clarity of Scripture. So God's word is clear or clear enough. It is clear enough on the important things that we need to know so that we can get the big picture. We can get the main point. Sure, certainly there are many things that are less clear or um, we will struggle to understand all of our lives, but the main things are clear enough. So uh, if you are trying to figure out God's will, you want to know what God's will is in any particular situation, your starting point should be, well, what does the Bible say? But if you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you've read the entire Bible and hopefully you've read the entire Bible multiple times. After a while, you kind of get the hang of it. You know the, the basic overview. You know what the Bible says. You know what the Bible teaches. You could explain to someone else what each of the books of the Bible are all about without even having a Bible on hand. You would just be able to say, well, there's the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books, etc. You can just kind of walk anyone through an overview of the Bible just because you're a Christian and you know the Bible. So you understand God's revealed will, but nevertheless, there are still those situations, those complicated things. Um, you're trying to choose between apartments or you're trying to choose which major you should have in college or which college you should go to or whether you should stay in state or go out of state for school or which job you should either Except or which job you should apply for or which direction you should even go related to jobs. Or um, you find yourself faced with, let's say, two identical internships in two different cities. And you're saying, well, which one should I take? Which city should I go to? Or suppose you're here and you're not a member here, but you need to know or decide which church to join. You're not going to find that listed in the Bible. You're not going to find anything about uh, which apartment to sign in the Bible or which major to major in in the Bible or what job to take or who to marry. These types of things are not given to us in the Bible. 
Many of life's decisions are, in fact, wisdom issues. They are not sin issues. They are not black and white things. They are a little gray or a little less clear. And so you need to use wisdom, which is a combination of a lot of factors all together. It's, it's the, the composite of knowing the word of God and knowing your situation and knowing um, a, a million other factors all combined together in order to make a decision that you believe is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I do believe that it is possible for a wisdom issue to be so plainly obvious that to ignore that wisdom issue is walking in foolishness and can become, eventually, it can become a matter of sin. The Bible tells us not to be fools, not to be foolish, but to be wise. So to neglect that issue, to neglect or ignore, willfully ignore the issue of wisdom can become sinful. But that doesn't mean that all wisdom issues are equally clear. Further, that factor that a wisdom issue can become foolishness if you ignore certain things, uh, that it can become sinful, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what we're talking about right now. Instead, we're sticking with two equally legitimate options, and you're not sure which one to pick. Let's say you want to buy a car and you've always wanted a Jeep. And there are many factors involved in making the decision whether or not to buy the Jeep. For example, can you afford it? Did you factor in affording not only the car payment or the car expense itself, but also gas and insurance and tickets and tolls and parking? Can you afford it? Can it beyond can you afford it, is it possible? You know, not all things that you want are possible. For example, not everything that you want even exists. The perfect apartment does not exist. It just doesn't. The the number of apartments in New York City, short of building new ones, which I don't think most of us are doing right now, short of building a new apartment, there's a fixed number of apartments in New York City. And so you can have a certain thing in mind. You want a certain number of bedrooms with a certain number of bathrooms with a certain square footage and the living room to be of a certain shape in a certain neighborhood for a particular price that has laundry in the unit and a dishwasher, but also for that certain price near the one train. That might not exist. So that's where the question is, is this thing that you want, is it possible? Beyond that, on the car analogy, do you have a need for it? Do you have a use for it? Different people will answer that question in different ways. If your name is Sarad, you definitely have a need for a car. If you're involved in a lot of things outside the city, you may not have a need necessarily, but you may have a use for it. If you do not know how to drive, you have neither a need nor a use for the car. Which then leads into the last question, which is, is the thing a good idea? You might have the opportunity to do the thing, but is this really a good idea? Is it a good idea now? Is it the right time now? There are countless questions to factor in when you're considering a thing. So how do you know when there are many options or many paths to choose from? So number one, if God's word clearly addresses it, then there's your answer. It's clear. Number two, if God, God's word addresses it not clearly, but with complexity, because there are, in fact, many things in the Bible that are not as clear. They are addressed, but they're not 
quite so clear, maybe your answer is more complex and maybe it requires wisdom. Number three, if God's word doesn't address it, then this thing might be a matter of Christian freedom. And when I say Christian freedom, I mean true freedom. You could do the thing. You can get the Jeep. You can buy the Tesla. You have the freedom, the liberty to do so, and it is fine. So, let's say that you are trying to make a decision between one job or another job, or between um, staying here, moving back to live with your parents, or um, to go for grad school, or to just stick with whatever your current degree situation is, the first and most obvious step is to renew your mind according to God's word. Know God's word. If you know God's word, that will answer a lot of your basic questions. Then number two, consider all the facts. Make a list if need be. This is extremely helpful in things like apartment shopping. Just make, literally make a list of pros and cons. Make a list of the colleges and the, 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 the choices that you're looking for, the, the majors, the, um, the cost, the career opportunities afterwards. Do you like it? How much do you like it? On a scale of one to 10, is this like your favorite favorite or something that you can barely tolerate? Consider all the facts and make lists if you need to. Then thirdly, carefully seek wise counsel. I put this third instead of second because it's the order in which I thought of it. But now that I think of it, it's helpful to get counsel, but that counsel can only be helpful if it's informed counsel. And so that's where it's helpful if you've already thought through the thing before you go and ask for advice. Because counselors typically are kind of limited by what information you provide for them. So the clearer and more factual your advice is and the more you're able to just present a piece of paper with the list of the pros and cons to the person that you're discussing this with, the more helpful they would be. Some counselors are horrible. Some counselors are worse than no counselors. It helps to cultivate a long-term relationship with a mentor or mentors who will shoot straight with you and can get to know you over a multi-year time frame. And then they can offer insight and advice. For many of us, this role is fulfilled by our parents because our parents have known us our entire life. And so, just speak for myself for a second, when I talk to my dad and say, hey dad, here's the situation. He's like, yeah, you mentioned that last year and the year before and the year before. What are you gonna do? See, he already knows the, the background and the track record. There's not as much explaining that needs to be done versus starting over from scratch with someone who doesn't know you and they don't know the situation. It would be like going to a, a major Christian conference and you walk up to, let's say, you walk up to Vodi and you say, Vodi, what should I do with my life? What is God's will for my life? That is an absolute waste of time. There's less than no purpose in you doing that. That is actually a harmful and stupid thing for you to do. You should not do that. The man does not know you. You don't know him. It's completely pointless. You need to ask advice of people that have enough perspective and enough knowledge of you and your situation to have a helpful bit of advice. After you carefully seek wise counsel, make the wisest choice. Yes, this means literally picking something. Sometimes we are afraid to make choices. Sometimes we feel frozen because we have too many options. Or we have fear of missing out. You're standing there at the restaurant looking at the menu and there's too many options and you're afraid that if I get the number one and I don't like it, then I will have given up my opportunity to choose number two, three, four, or five. 
if I get the chicken parm and I don't like it, then I didn't get the fettuccine Alfredo and I know that I like that, but I also know that I like the penny ala vodka. So I've got these, these options, but I'm limited and so I'm afraid. Well, eventually you have to make a decision. So make the decision, pick something, and see what happens. In the restaurant situation, you might say, well, I want the chicken parm, and then the waiter will say, oh, I'm so sorry, we're out of that. Well, there, there was your answer. You're looking at the apartments, trying to choose which one. You narrowed it down to four, and you decided, well, I'll apply to this first one. So you send in your application, and then the broker replies, oh, sorry, it just got rented by someone else. Well, there's your option, or there's your answer, that that one's a no, and then you move on with your next pick. So make your pick and then see what happens. You might get rejected on that apartment application. Then, if that happens, take that closed door as God's will. Now, even this is a little bit complicated because not all closed doors are really closed. And so then you have to figure out how persistent am I going to be? When the first no comes, do you just take that no or do you say, oh, well, add me to the waiting list. You know, you ask for the refund on the product that wasn't very good and they say, well, we don't do refunds. And then you can say, well, I'd like to speak to the manager because this was very disappointing and you really need to give me the refund. My notes just say, take the closed doors, God's will. But don't be paralyzed by fear. Also, don't over-spiritualize everything. Don't over-spiritualize everything that you do as, quote, God's will, close quote. It is possible for you to sin, which means not every choice that you make is the right choice. Don't be paralyzed in fear of that. Make the best decision that you can, but also acknowledge this might be the wrong choice, but I have to make a choice because today is the day that I need to submit the paperwork for the thing, whatever it is we're talking about. Recognize it might not work out so well, so don't try to deeply spiritualize absolutely everything. You might make a bad decision. And when you do, you need to take a step back and be willing to, to, to turn around and say, well, this was a wrong decision, or in biblical language, you repent. And so don't complicate that bad decision by compounding it with a second, third, and fourth bad decision. So let's say you're dating, or before you start dating, you're like, oh, there's these two different girls. They're both in my class. I think they're both kind of cute. I don't see any problems with either of them. I think they're both open to me talking to them. But I'm not sure who I should ask out. But the clock's ticking. I'm getting older. I'm approaching graduation, etc. Well, Make a decision, if you're going to, and then see what happens. The girl can just be like, oh, sorry, I just started dating yesterday, and then there's your answer. But if the girl's like, oh, okay, I'd be happy to go on a date with you. So then you go on the date, and then you realize a couple dates in, like, actually, this girl is absolutely nuts. Or you realize this girl's not a Christian. Or you realize this girl is going a different direction. She's going in a direction that is absolutely not compatible with the direction that I'm going. Don't complicate things by making more 
regrettable decisions. Instead, you can say, okay, we're going to put on the brakes and not continue to pursue this. We're going to turn around, head the opposite direction, instead of saying, oh, well, maybe we just need to press harder. Maybe we just need to force this together. So don't complicate a bad decision by compounding it with a second, third, or fourth bad decision. Now, taking a step back to the issue of God's will, how to know God's will, how to figure out God's will, the Bible gives us helpful tips, helpful words of wisdom here and there. And one of these classic verses that should come to your mind, I, I believe it would come to the mind of every mature Christian, and that would be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you don't know what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, you're not as mature as you think you are, if you think you're mature. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Or in the Andy Standard Version, it says, He actually will direct your actual path. So you are praying and asking God, Please guide me. Okay, don't lean on your own understanding and your own wisdom. Seek the Lord and his wisdom. Seek godly counsel. Okay, you're, you're doing that. Check, check, check. Then in all your ways, acknowledge him. Trusting in him, looking to him, and then take the step and trust that he actually will direct your literal path. And it'll be okay. And you don't need to be afraid. And if you find yourself in a bad situation, trust that the Lord knows. The Lord knows, and he will be with you. Next, this is my question. I submitted. Civil disobedience. See, it seems as though we're ramping up for another round of COVID insanity. So it raises the question, is it ever okay to lie to the government? Or should we just follow the orders and do as we're told? You recognize that this scenario has happened before, both quite literally this exact scenario roughly three years ago, but also the situation of a government telling a group of people that includes a lot of Christians to just shut up and do what you're told. I try not to constantly make reference to the Nazis because that is one of those things that's alluded to. Like when you have a really weak point, you just reference the Nazis. Um, But Christian soldiers arresting the Jews and loading them into train cars in World War II Germany. And I put Christian in in, in loose quotes, but cultural Christians of the national church sort in Germany. They're just doing what they're told. They're just complying. They're, they're just going with their orders. Here in the U.S., we had COVID lockdowns, and it seems like they might be coming back. It feels bad to compare the first illustration with the second, but the second illustration is the one that we have dealt with in the past and will be seemingly dealing with again. So you've got COVID lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, stay-at-home orders, close your business orders, discriminate against your customers based on vaccine status orders, all of which present a multitude of opportunities to either comply or not comply, to either be completely transparent telling everything that's in your brain or be a little less than transparent with the information. Some might even call it lying. 
These things have happened throughout history. They are happening all around us. I believe that Christians have broadly fallen into three categories on this issue. And the first is what, in my book, I call the unlimited submission view. Do any of you not have my book and you would like a copy? Okay, well, I have two copies. So, um, I'm not sure how to decide who gets them, but I would like to have a volunteer come and get them. Michaela, can you come up to the front? Because I gave you one the other day, right? All right, so here, you come get these and give them to whoever you choose. So first off, we have, this is a, the Romans 13 chapter in this book. Um, the unlimited submission view. The unlimited submission view is whatever the government says, we will do. Romans 13, don't you know? These are the Christians who are really, really passionate about wearing masks two years ago and a year ago and six months ago and last week. You see them walking around New York City. They wear their mask as a sign of, of, of virtue and holiness. Even though COVID has been over for years now, they continue to wear the mask. Why? Because at some point, the government told us to wear a mask. They post selfies of themselves on social media. They, they did it very early. They were early adopters posting selfies of themselves wearing a double mask in their empty car by themselves on their way to go get their COVID vaccine on the first day that they were allowed. I think of men like Russell Moore. Though he's not an unlimited submission guy. He's just an unlimited submission guy when it advances the Democrat agenda. These are the types of people who wrote articles advocating for the closure of the church, and they criticized churches who refused to comply. This reminds me of Nine Marks Ministries and men like Jonathan Lehman saying that John MacArthur's church is wrong for opening after being closed for a few months. Because the government says, Romans 13, we, we, or the government says we must comply, we must close, and Romans 13 says we must do whatever they tell us. So on this unlimited submission view, that is option number one. Option number two is what I would call, I just made up this term, but good citizenship. Good citizenship. It recognizes that in our country, we have laws and a constitution and checks and balances and that when a tyrant asserts themselves into a position that they do not actually rightfully have, and then that tyrannical leader defies the laws that are in place, then to submit to that unlawful tyranny, even if everyone is doing it, is actually not the most Christian response. For example, vaccine mandates and church lockdowns. If you haven't been paying attention, there has been this massive shift I hate to even say the word gaslighting because of the way it's thrown around so frequently, but it's gaslighting of, of people and articles and leaders coming forward and saying, we didn't force you to get the vaccine. Literally, I'm talking like Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, New York Times, you know, that sort of thing. They're like, we didn't force anyone to get the vaccine. No, you did. You forced the entire country to do it, but half the country or a third of the country risked everything like their job and their social status and, and fitting in or whatever. They, they risked a, a massive amount to resist your ridiculous pressure. As well as the church lockdowns. 
This was a thing. It was mandated. Now, the reality is we actually have laws that are over people like Anthony Fauci. And he was not free to make it up as he went along, though he did. He doesn't have the freedom to commit crime after crime. And, in fact, his recommendations and even policies should not carry the weight of a conscience-binding authority in the minds of Christians. A recommendation from the CDC should not bind your conscience, which, which is informed by Scripture, which says, hey, we're supposed to submit to the, the laws of the land. Well, a recommendation from the CDC is not of that level. And you should not feel guilty for ignoring it or defying it. This point, too, what I've labeled good citizenship is a position that I hold, and I believe that you also have an obligation to resist such evil. And I think that you should not feel even the slightest bit guilty for such resistance. Broadly speaking, there's two types of people. There's rule followers and not rule followers. And the rule follower types, they're like, oh, but I would feel guilty if I don't go along with whatever the thing is. No, you shouldn't. You should not feel guilty for resisting what we now today in 2023 know is just evil. It's a lie. It's built upon lie after lie after lie. Particularly knowing the what we know now about the harm and the damages that were caused by such things as these mandated vaccines. Now, the reality is, the way things have been, is that you have to go along with it in order to keep your job. But hey, it might kill you. Like what, one in 200 or something? I mean, there's just a not good odds. You'll be fine, but... We all know people with vaccine injuries because of this. So you're faced with this dilemma. You either comply or you lie. I'm about to make a biblical case for the virtue of the thing that would by some be considered lying and I have something like 13 points, sorry, 14 points, 13 points under this. First off, the Hebrew midwives, quote unquote, lied to save the Israelite babies because they feared God more than the government. Secondly, Moses resisted Pharaoh's tyranny. He stood up to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. He didn't just comply. Oh, okay, you want us just to be slaves forever. Fine, sure, please, give us more slavery. Rahab, the Bible says, by faith, Rahab gave a friendly welcome to the Israelite spies and she was spared because of her faith in God. But we know from reading the story that she straight up lied to the soldiers that came in search of the spies. So here's the question. You're in World War II and the Nazis are knocking on your door and you've got a whole family of Jews hiding in the back room and they say, you got any Jews in there? And you're like, oh, but if I tell them no, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be sinning. What should I do? 
You tell them no. You close the door in their face. You don't say, oh yeah, actually they're in the back room. Like, like what are you, stupid? We've got biblical examples. This is also not the same thing as moral relativism. If you need a label for it, you can put Martin Luther's label on it, which he called sin boldly. I don't think it's even sinful, but nevertheless, the Bible says don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and these soldiers are not your neighbor, and you're not bearing false witness. You're not lying in court to, the damage, to, to cause damage to your neighbor. Point four, the prophet Nathan opposed King David's sinful and unlawful act of government overreach when David sinned with Bathsheba and then has her husband killed. And then the prophet Nathan goes and confronts him and says, you are the man, you've done these wicked things. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to the statue when the music played. They didn't just go with the flow. They didn't just comply. They didn't just obey the king's edict. Don't forget about Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel had one rule that he was under, and that one rule was simply don't pray. Well, what did he do? Well, he prayed. It would have been really easy to rationalize and say, oh, well, I can just, I'll pray, I'll pray in secret. Imagine his friends being like, oh, no, don't, don't, don't pray over there. Close the door. Close the windows. Close. I almost said his family, but I think Daniel was like a eunuch, so he didn't have family. But um, his, his wife, his, his, non, his non-wife saying, don't pray by the window. But then he throws the window open and says, no, I'm going to pray. So he prayed and he did so in direct defiance of this wicked legislation. Remember the apostles, Peter and John, in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 5.29, they preached the gospel. 5.29, it might be 2.29, I'm not sure. They preached the gospel when they were forbidden from preaching the gospel by the authorities. Remember Peter, when the angel set him free from prison, he stayed out of prison. And in doing so, he avoided execution. Those in the camp of the unlimited submission group would likely say, Peter, you got to go back to jail. What are you doing out? The government said that you're guilty. The government says you're not supposed to be preaching. And then here you are preaching. You deserve to be in jail. I referenced this in my book. Uh, One of my classmates from Canada was very critical of another classmate from Canada whose name was James Coates. And the one classmate said, well, James deserves to be arrested. He's not being persecuted. He's breaking the law. The law says close your church. It's not safe. People in that first camp would say, well, you need to go back to jail, Peter. Government says you're supposed to be in jail right now. What are you doing out? But in fact, that's not what Peter did. He did not go back to jail to get his head chopped off because he didn't believe you're supposed to submit unconditionally and then just march off and go be killed when you could not be killed. Remember Paul, when Paul confronted the soldiers who beat him unjustly in Acts 16.37 and Acts 22.23. 
Paul is being beaten by a soldier who's taking the law into his own hands, who is defying the actual existing laws. And Paul says, as he's being beaten, wait a second, wait a second, is this legal? And the one who's beating him suddenly becomes very nervous because he recognizes he's actually breaking the law. He should not be doing this. It instilled terror in that soldier because he knew he was violating a law that's higher than himself. You even see this in Jesus. Jesus picking grain on the Sabbath, healing a lame man on the Sabbath, getting on the wrong side of the local authorities over this. In my book, I made an interesting comment that you even see Jesus saying a word to his parents in his temple incident when he was, what, 12 or 13. Like, why were you with the, you know, why, why did you get lost? Why did you wander off? And he's like, well, I'm doing the will of my father. Instead of just like, oh, I'm very, very sorry. I shouldn't have been doing anything differently than what you wanted. Historically, men like Martin Luther have also done this. They've demonstrated this by Luther's opposition to the Pope, who was quite possibly the most powerful man in the world at the time, who was very much against everything that he was doing, by his Luther's preaching, Luther's teaching, his translating the Bible, and his publishing. All of that stuff was illegal. He shouldn't have been doing it. He shouldn't have been teaching in contradiction to the authorities. The entire history of the modern Bible translation is ripe with many examples of godly resistance to tyranny. Many of the early Bible translators or translations were illegal. You've heard of the Matthews Bible? The reason the Matthews Bible, which was a foundational Bible leading up to the King James, the Matthews Bible was translated by John Rogers and William Tyndale. And he, John Rogers, who finished the project, called it the Matthews Bible rather than putting his own name on it because he didn't want to be killed for, tra- for committing the sin or the crime of translating the Bible into the language of the common man. So he puts the name Matthew on it just to throw somebody else under the bus. These Bible translations were illegal, and the people in the first category would say, well, it's against the law to translate the Bible, so you shouldn't translate the Bible. You've got to submit to the government no matter what. You may have heard of a guy named Brother Andrew, nicknamed God's Smuggler, because he became famous for smuggling Bibles into communist countries. It was illegal to take the Bibles into these Soviet countries and communist countries. The Reformation is one giant project in godly resistance to tyranny. The entire Reformation. Think of it, like the English Reformation, these martyrs that were killed. And now here, point 14, I wrote, give a plug for my book, chapter 13, maybe give away two copies. Well, we did. We gave away, who got them, by the way? Nice. Um, Now, Point three. So we have point one is the unlimited submission view. Point two is what I call um, good citizenship, where you actually like you're willing to hold the government in check and say, wait, you're doing something illegal. You know that, right? You, You actually can't command what you're attempting to command. The third option is I don't actually know anyone who holds to this, but it's what it would could be called Christian anarchy. I've been told by a friend of mine, uh, Timothy J. Martin, he says that this is actually a thing. There are people out there who advocate for this, possibly an extreme form of libertarianism, where they would say that the government doesn't have any authority at all. 
I don't know. I've never encountered these people. They might possibly be in the sovereign citizens movement where they're like, oh, I'm not a citizen of any, any country. And if I declare this and you need, the government has to give me like a million dollars somehow in some this made up nonsense. But I was told about this by someone once uh, or the three percenters. I don't know what a three percenter is, but I'm told it's in the same category. Do you know what this is? You, you, you're kind of. Yeah. Um, basically people who are like, look, they, they can't tell me what to do. I'm going to run my own black market basically and just do whatever I want because because Jesus is king, so I'm not under any authority. Um, so that's option three, Christian anarchy, which I do not advocate for. So don't take all of that resistance to tyranny uh, is obedience to God stuff and say that that means therefore we don't pay taxes or therefore we don't have any authority over us whatsoever. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying you do need to have a category in your mind for there being um, biblical precedent for opposing evil that is being done by the governing authorities, even when it impacts you. And so I'm saying don't feel guilty if you're like, look, I already got a couple of jabs and they almost killed me and I have these really harmful side effects and now my employer is saying that if I don't get a third, fourth, fifth jab, whatever, then I'm going to get fired. I'm telling you, do not feel guilty about going and finding a pen and getting your third and fourth jab on your piece of paper. There is no database. There is no way to check it. There is no way for you to get in trouble. Now, I'm not advocating forging government documents, just to be clear. Moving on. Point number three. True versus false repentance. Uh, I, don't, I don't recall what the precise phraseology of the question is, but it, perhaps it's something like, how do you tell the difference between true repentance and false repentance? Um, first off, please remember that repentance and faith are both gifts given by God. We're not the author of our faith. We are not the author of our own repentance. But that does not remove our responsibility to repent and believe. We are not the, the author of our faith, but we're commanded to believe. But what it should do this, this acknowledging that these are gifts from God should cause us to remember that in our natural condition, in our natural condition, we are dead in our sins. Then this should motivate our prayer for those that we love, who we desire to see their repentance, knowing that this is a work of God. So true repentance and true faith are similar in this way that the motives of the will are central to distinguish between the true and the false. The motives of the will are central. There are distinguishing characteristics, but the will is at the center of what makes something true or false. So, a situation or a, a illustration. You, you want to become a Christian. Why do you want to become a Christian? Is this genuine faith? Is this genuine repentance? Or is this false? Well, what's your motive? All my friends are doing it. This person said they only want to date a Christian. So I guess I need to convert. I'm lonely. Or it will make me socially acceptable. Or it will make me popular. Or it will make my parents happy. 
These are not the worst reasons, but these are not legitimate. These, these are not within the category of saving faith or true repentance. These are pragmatic attempts to manipulate. Whether you're trying to manipulate the people around you or trying to manipulate God, it is not legitimate. So why do you, as a Christian, want to repent? As we move forward into hopefully what is actually the intended question, why do you as a Christian want to repent? Are you seeking to repent to avoid a negative consequence of your sin? You did something you shouldn't have done, and you recognize you're about to get in trouble for it, and you'd like to not get in trouble for it, so you think, okay, well, I'll just repent. I repent! I repent! See me? I repent. So now there's no consequences, right? And further, is your response being scripted for you by the person that you've wronged? Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I repent. What do you want me to say to make it better? Yeah, that's called fake. That's not real. So, think with me. I'm sure you didn't do this, but... I know people who did this, namely my brothers. So think of a kid who hit his brother and then he got in trouble with his parents. You know, one little kid, another little kid. Fighting, one of them hits the other, in trouble with the parents. And the parent comes up and says, Peter, say you're sorry. Oh, I think this might have been where I needed a name, so I'll use my brother's name. Peter, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry for hitting Stephen. And let's say in this scenario, Peter is clearly not sorry. He hit Stephen because he was mad at Stephen. And that's, so we hit, see, see we hit him. Now say you're sorry, but he's not sorry. But dad says, say you're sorry. And if I don't say I'm sorry, I'm going to get in trouble. So what does he do? Well, he says, sorry. <laughs> kind of like that. Not very enthusiastically. No extra words attached to it. Just sorry. No, say you're sorry and mean it. Say, I'm very sorry. So he says, I'm very sorry. No, 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 no. Say you're very sorry and mean it, or else you will... All right, let's be nice here. So we're, we're dealing with this gently. Um, if you don't say you're sorry and mean it, we're going to take away your TV time for a week. I'm sorry, and I really mean it. There. Is that good enough? This whole situation is completely fake. I mean, it's, it's real because it happens, but this is not real repentance. And I'm sure that in the parenting thing, there could be value in teaching your three-year-old how to apologize to his two-year-old brother, telling them how to like think about things that they've done, sure. But when we're talking about real problems... This doesn't cut it. And if you don't recognize why this doesn't cut it, I think there's something wrong with you. Like something is not connecting in your Christianity. If you can't see why this scenario I just described is not legit and why it's not good enough. Now, compare it to another made-up situation. This is the one for... Trenton, but I'm not using Trenton. So, 
Let's say that you have a roommate and your roommate has been leaving dishes in the sink lately. And then your roommate had friends over. And you walk through the kitchen and you see the pile of dishes that have been accumulating in the sink for four days. There's like a little herd of flies swarming over them. There's some green stuff growing on some of those dishes. You're so annoyed by the situation. Further, you have a headache because you haven't drunk enough water today. So you're just, you, you don't feel good and you're annoyed. And then you see your roommate sitting on the couch. He's sitting on the sofa playing Call of Duty with his friends. And you are so annoyed. Now I made this, I don't know if any of y'all play Call of Duty. I have no idea. No, we got some Call of Duty players back there. All right. You see this happening and you are so irritated. And your roommate seems utterly clueless. Like, not, doesn't even, the thought doesn't even cross his mind that you might be annoyed by this whole situation and that he's done something that offended you by leaving those dishes in the sink since Monday and it's now Friday and he's got guests over and the, the house smells kind of weird because the stuff, the science experiment going on in this kitchen sink and then the flies that are like kind of, you're swatting them off. And then suddenly, in this whole situation, the microwave timer, the dinger, starts going off. And your roommate pauses his video game and looks up at you and says, Oh, that's the popcorn. Can you grab it? To you. And you're thinking, don't you know I am really irritated with you right now? And you're just acting all like everything is fine. And you're asking me to grab the popcorn. And what happens next is you kind of lose it. So you snap at him and you say, get it yourself. The way you keep this place is disgusting. And you storm off to your room and you slam the door behind you and a picture falls off the wall. Now, what happens next? Because you're regenerate, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And so you're sitting in your room, sulking, like a 12-year-old. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict you of your sinful words and actions. And this happens in every Christian, not just the spiritual ones. And then what happens next? Well, you begin to do everything in your power to make excuses for your outburst of sinful anger. So you're having this little wrestling match with God, the Holy Spirit, who's indwelling you, and you're sitting there in your chair, and you're just mad as can be, having a silent argument with God about how you deserve to be mad at your stupid roommate who is so ridiculous and not taking care of his messes. So you're trying to justify your outbursts of sinful anger. And then you justify it to yourself. And you're arguing with God and you're sulking and you're pacing back and forth in your room. Then you finally say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry I blew up at him. But I am absolutely not going to go out there and talk to him. And I'm not going to apologize because I have reasons to be mad. But I'm sorry at you because, uh, you know, sin against God. Can't stand my roommate. He's so selfish. I have a right to be mad. Well, what happens next? Well, because you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit indwells you, what happens is the Holy Spirit starts to soften your heart, starts to kind of break you down in your hardness of heart, 
and you finally say, okay, God, if you want me to go tell him I'm sorry, you're going to have to help me because I'm still so angry. And gradually what happens over the next few minutes is your heart of stone, your, your, your rocky, icy heart begins to kind of soften a little bit and melt a little bit. And the Holy Spirit begins to help you shape the words that you need to say. But your heart begins to race because you're, you're having this war going on within you between the flesh and the spirit. And you don't want to say what you need to say. As you practice these words, you're so nervous as well because you've never seen anyone do what you're about to do. You've never seen someone blow up, storm off, and then come back and apologize? Like, raise your hand if you've ever seen this. Like, not, not a, it doesn't happen very much. There were like three of you about to raise your hand. People just don't do that. It's extremely rare. But, but you've seen people blow up, right? That happens all the time. That's not rare. You've never, it's never been done to you. You've never had someone sin against you in this type of way and then come back and apologize. So you've never seen it done. It's never been done to you. You can't think of a time your parents ever came to you and said, I'm sorry for losing my temper with you. So you in this situation are struggling to find the words and the courage, but even in this moment, the Holy Spirit is virtually carrying you. Eventually what will happen is you will come to the point that you're more miserable not saying you're sorry than eating your pride and speaking to the one that you sinned against. So in the moment, you quietly open the bedroom door and you shuffle out sheepishly to where your roommate and his friends are still playing Call of Duty with their empty pizza boxes all around them and the popcorn bowls around them. And you say, hey, I'm sorry I snapped at you. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. Will you forgive me? And then you wait. And your roommate and his buddies are completely taken back because they've never seen this happen before. They've never, never had an adult apologize to them for blowing up at them. Finally, your roommate breaks the silence after an eternity that was really only about three seconds. And he says, yes, yes, of course. I'm sorry for not cleaning up after myself. I've had a crazy week. My boss quit and I've had extra work. I've had to work late every night. I've been really stressed and I just didn't have the energy to do the dishes. And then I had my buddies over to hang out to kind of unwind. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for leaving the kitchen a mess. It's not, it's not glorious, but it is glorious. That second scenario is real repentance. The first one where the parent is in the kid's face saying, say you're sorry, that's, that's not real repentance. See, false repentance also, in a bigger scenario than just the kid, but false repentance denies any wrongdoing. They're angry at the one who confronts them. They reframe themselves as the victim. If you've ever heard of Darvo, you need to, if you've never heard of it, you need to familiarize yourself with Darvo. It's deny, accuse, reverse, uh, reverse role of a victim and offender. It's just a classic weapon in um, verbal and emotional abuse. It's where a person is, they say, no, 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 I didn't do it. You did it. And they flip the script. False repentance denies any wrongdoing. It's angry at the one who confronts them. It reframes themselves as the victim. And then they're only sorry that they got caught 
Then, after realizing that they're not going to be able to get away from this, and they quickly pivot, they do a 180, to then they apologize in order to avoid any negative consequences. There is no sense whatsoever of internal remorse. There's no concern for the Word of God. And frankly, they can't face the possibility that they might be wrong. But when they're stuck in this situation because they kind of got ganged up on by more people or more witnesses or someone else who's looking on the situation, then they lead to despair and negative self-talk and some sort of pity party. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I just can't. Like, I'm, I'm worthless. Well, why are they doing that? Because they're trying to manipulate the people around them in order to rebuild their ego. On the other hand, true repentance is not coerced. It is not manipulated by external forces. True repentance initiates. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And so the Holy Spirit convicts. It might not be exactly on your timetable, but it happens. So the Holy Spirit convicts the one who has sinned. True repentance is not coerced or manipulated by external forces, but rather true repentance is drawn out by the Holy Spirit. True repentance is willing to own their wrongdoing without making excuses. Well, if you just wouldn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that. True repentance is willing to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, period, without blaming. You know, in my video game situation, the one who is truly repentant will come back out of the room and say, I'm sorry for snapping at you. It was wrong for me to speak that way. Will you forgive me? And just leave it at that. Instead of saying, I'm sorry for snapping at you. It was wrong for me to speak that way. But you really shouldn't leave those dishes in the sink for a week. You see the difference? True repentance is willing to accept the consequences of their action. They're willing to accept, well, this person actually might not forgive me because what I did was really bad. They, you know, this, this might be over now because, like, I just really, really screwed things up. True repentance says, I, yeah, I own that. I deserve that. I deserve the consequences of my actions. True repentance feels a sorrow, a sense of sorrow for the wrong that they did and the harm that they caused, the hurt that they caused. They actually feel bad. And true repentance, all of this is actually a sign of God's grace at work within them. When someone feels the conviction of sin and then they initiate going to someone and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I did this thing I shouldn't have done. That shows, that indicates that the Spirit of God is in that person indwelling them. This is one of the ways that parents with small children can try to gauge whether or not the kid's actually a Christian. Even a, a young, as young as five years old. True repentance also then looks to Christ for hope and for healing as well as for restoration. 
Moving on. Question four, sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. I uh, wasn't super sure about this one because I feel like I address it pretty regularly, but the issue of um, man's will, man has a will, you've got your range of ability to do things, and then there's God's will. So the question of free will comes up. Are we robots? I mean, it's like, obviously, of course we're not robots, but if you have Arminian friends, they'll accuse you of believing that man is a robot, which then raises the question behind the question, which is how does compatibilism work? Which any sermon on this topic in the history of time since Charles Spurgeon forward will then insert the Spurgeon quote about, well, I don't reconcile uh, the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man because I don't need to reconcile two good friends. And the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are friends and they don't need to be reconciled because they actually are entirely compatible and they cooperate together. And this is not a problem that any of us need to solve. But nevertheless, the question is raised. How does this work? So I would say read D.A. Carson's PhD dissertation from about 50 years ago and you'll have a scholarly treatment on this. But if that's a little too much, I have a paragraph. So you are responsible for your actions. True, period, fact. You're responsible for your actions, but God is sovereign over your actions. So you're responsible for what you do, but God is sovereign over all. So let's say that you want to eat ice cream. Why do you want that ice cream? Well, you don't really know. You just do. You just want it. Or you want chocolate, but not pistachio. Or by a stroke of insanity, you suddenly find yourself wanting vegan ice cream from Van Leeuwen's. Why is that? You don't know. Why do you like what you like? You're not sure. Sure, some of this might be conditioned. It might be because you were raised a certain way or you were taught to, that, that chocolate is good and pistachio is bad because it's green and green is gross and we shouldn't eat things that are green except, well, no, we don't eat vegetables in this house. We just, we just eat meat. Amen? Amen. But let me ask, is there anything that could happen that could change you wanting ice cream in that moment as you're like, oh, I really, really want some ice cream right now? Well, perhaps it starts raining. And you're just like, oh, I don't want to go out. Like, to go out in that weather right now? I know I wanted ice cream, but like, that's a downpour. Or perhaps it starts snowing. That could impact your desire for ice cream. Now, you and I can't control the weather, but God can control the weather. Perhaps, on a more severe note, you get a phone call from your mom on the way you're going to get ice cream, and your mom tells you that your dad just died in a freak accident by falling off a ladder. You might suddenly lose your appetite and not really want ice cream anymore. You can't control the weather, and you can't control other people. God is sovereign over all. Plans of a man belong to him, but the Lord is overall. The Bible puts the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side in numerous places. But I have just one listed here, and it's Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified. The reason why Jesus was delivered up to be crucified is because before time began, God, the Trinity, established this covenant of redemption. God, the Trinity, established this plan, which was that Jesus would come into the world and would go to the cross. But you crucified him, and you're responsible for your action of crucifying him. When I say you, I don't mean you, you. I mean like the people that crucified him. So God is sovereign over all, but you're responsible to obey, to turn away from sin. And there may be times when God intervenes in a, in a direct way. You intended to do the thing and it, something providentially happened which prevented you from it. A few of you have heard my story about when I was single for forever and was really, really like just done with this and kind of want to get on with life. And so like, oh, there's adoption. Like single people can adopt. Cool. So I started like reading all these books and I was just imagining like, all right, so someday, someday I will find a girl who's willing to be a pastor's wife in New York City. And, um, but I will have already adopted. So how's that going to work? Well, I'll just adopt like a teenager. So it'll be like me at 20, what, eight years old at the time. And I'll have this like 16 year old adopted son. To me, it was a very funny scenario, but I was like, sure, why not? Let's, let's, let's do this. And um, have a bunch of books on this. And I was researching it and planning on going to an info meeting on this adoption thing. Literally, this was like, I RSVP'd to the, to the event. And I told my brother, Peter, who was living here with me at the time, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go to this adoption info meeting. Because, like, these people are desperate to get these kids who are about to age out of the system into, like, families and stuff. Um, and so, like, I'm literally putting on my shoes to go, and I suddenly become violently ill and throwing up, like projectile vomiting. And I, have, I, like, I don't throw up. Like, that's just not a thing for me. And I hadn't thrown up in years prior to that like three, four years before, and I haven't, other than like being severely ill, I really haven't thrown up since then. Certainly never had such a unexplained moment like that, but here I find myself like (laughs) stuck in the bathroom all evening and then like watching the clock. And it's like, as soon as I start to feel better, it's just like, oh, gotta go throw up again. So the Lord stopped me from going to that meeting. It just didn't happen, and now I don't have a 17-year-old son. So I guess it was God's will that I not go. So God can overrule our plans when we're trying to do certain things. And this ties in with um, the earlier question about how do you know God's will? Like, okay, well, you, you try. Give the thing a shot and see if it works out. Do you want to go on that trip? Well, okay, start planning. Look at ticket prices. See if there are plane tickets. See if there are planes going that way at that time. I had a, a trip that I was looking at. I signed up for it months ago, and it's coming up in a, a few weeks. And uh, I'm just thinking, like, well, should I go to this or not? You've heard of Turning Point, the Turning Point uh, Pastors Summit. It's it's in a couple weeks, and I'm supposed to go to it, and I didn't buy plane tickets. And then I'm like, well, let's look at it. And lo and behold, plane tickets are like 160 bucks to San Diego. So I was like, well, I think we can manage that. And I'll just go out for two days and come back and it'll be fine. 
But then other tickets for previous trip to Ohio from like a couple weeks ago, it was $2,200 for two plane tickets. And I'm like, this is not going to happen. So I kept on researching and looking and finding and trying to weigh other options. And I finally figured out another way to, to, to do it that didn't have to pay that kind of money. But ultimately, you, you, you try, you give the thing a shot, and then leave the result in God's hands, knowing that God can stop your plans or God can open the door for the thing to be possible. So the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man coincide. They work together in perfect harmony. Um, next, the question of the Holy Spirit. So this one is from Giselle. And she says, can you demystify the Holy Spirit? Well, before we get into that, let me read this question from, uh, from the audience here. Um, what are the different types of God's wills and how do you reconcile them with there being no division in God? Um, I don't know if I've sufficiently dealt with this, but I've, I've talked about God's will enough tonight. I don't really want to keep talking about God's will. Um, the no division in God. I'm not sure if that's referring to like classical theism. Are you talking about classical theism right now? No division in God. Like either way, that's going to be way too deep into the pool for this. We can talk about that. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. All right, the Holy Spirit. Can you demystify the Holy Spirit? Answer, no. <laughs> what does it mean that he dwells in us? Is that the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit? So answer number one, no, I cannot demystify the Holy Spirit. My college pastor called me a mystic, and I still stand by that. Um, what does it mean that he dwells in us? Well, the... The way, to, the way I could explain this that would hopefully be meaningful for people, um, let's say that you, all right, Anais and Michaela, you're my honorary people since Trenton just walked out of the room. So Anais, you are sitting in our living room on the couch with the blanket and Michaela walks in, and she sits down next to you. Suddenly, you are aware of her presence. You can sense it. You can look at her and say, I don't know, I don't know what y'all talk about, but let's just say you just look at her and say, uh, you want to go to Myrtle Beach for your fall break? And she says, yeah. And then you say, well, when is it? And then she gives you the answer. And then you just start talking and you're chatting about this. Well, her presence in that situation is very, very real. And your ability to communicate with her and even commune with her is very real. And you um, say, you know what? I'm kind of hungry right now. So you get up and you walk over to the refrigerator per usual. And there you open it up and you're like, hmm. Do you have any of that mac and cheese from uh, Omar's uh, cookout? And uh, a voice comes from down the hallway that says, yeah, it's in the foil. And so then you pull out the mac and cheese, take off the foil, because you don't want to microwave foil, put it in the microwave, and then you ask Michaela, would you like some? And she says, yes. And see here, you are having conversation 
with someone whose presence is very real and is with you and you're aware of it in a tangible, practical way. You're able to communicate with them and even have fellowship with them. So in an effort to demystify the Holy Spirit, I will tell you that the Holy Spirit is just as real as Michaela is and that you can have just as real of a relationship with the Holy Spirit as this little scenario that I just described, only without necessarily the audible voice saying, yeah, I want mac and cheese. But that sense of the the reality and nearness of the presence of your friend, the Holy Spirit offers that level of realness and reality. Now, you might say, well, I don't feel that. Well, you might not feel that right now. But if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will be with you in times of greatest need. Times of greatest need that you may never have even begun to encounter yet. Your life has been pretty good, pretty easy, and you've really never even been alone. The Spirit will be with you. Now, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit the same thing as the filling of the Holy Spirit? My answer is no. Some people's answer would be yes. The reason my answer is no is that the indwelling of the Spirit, I believe, is tied to the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us. Dwelling has to do with living or your dwelling place. Uh, So the Spirit, when we are a Christian, the Spirit takes up residence in you. But that's not the same thing as um, the fullness of the Spirit. So the illustration that's used, this is tied to Ephesians, but that is um, that of a house. So in a house, um, or let's say in this building, the Holy Spirit or a fog machine can begin to fill up this room. You can fill up this room with smoke. But that's not necessarily meaning that the next level will be filled up or the third level or the basement. Now, if you want to fill up those other areas, you can take steps to make that happen. You can go open the doors. You can start like fanning the smoke into those areas. And I believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is like that in that um, it's tied to dedication, it's tied to surrender, it's tied to, to submission, to asking or giving areas of your life in a greater and greater way to the Lord and saying, God, I, I want your will in my career plans. I've never thought of this before. I've never thought of submitting my five-year plan, my 10-year plan, my 30-year plan. I've never thought of giving that over to you, but I'm going to give that to you right now, and I want your will in my 20s and 30s and 40s. And all the people in your life, they don't even think in those terms. Your parents don't think in those terms. You've never had someone bring this up to you, but you find yourself thinking, no, Lord, I want your will for my 20s. And so you're submitting and asking for the Spirit's fullness and for his guidance and his wisdom and his direction. And this can take place in any sort of way or thing. Um, part of why I say I can't demystify the Holy Spirit is because of John 3. 
John 3, uh, Jesus answered, Verily I tr- say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. You cannot tell where it's going. Which then should remind you of the song, I know whom I have believed. It goes like this. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Verse two, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. Verse 3, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. So it's saying, in essence, I don't know how the mysteries of God work. I don't know how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. I don't know how he creates faith in them. I don't know those things. I don't know the exact moment of my conversion, the exact moment of my regeneration. There was this whole process, this lengthy period of time. But what I do know is I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus. And I know that he is able to keep what I've committed to him, my soul, until that final day. So I hope, Giselle, that you don't take this answer as being snarky when I say, no, I cannot demystify the Holy Spirit. But um, there are a lot of verses about this. And so they are, if you're writing them down or we're going to listen later, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God and that you are not your own? 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Isaiah 63, 11 says, Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? 2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Uh, Acts 6.5, the Spirit is um, on these men, the, the seven deacons. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, by Ephesians 5.18, when it says be filled with the Spirit, the literalist, literal rendering of that is be continually being filled with the Spirit. So it's this command with this ongoing result that it is something you are to continuously pursue. And then that's placed in contrast to being drunk. And so let's say you're trying to be continuously being filled with wine. What does that look like? Well, you keep drinking. And then you start to feel like the effects of it are wearing off. You're going to keep drinking. Shots, shots, shots. 
You got to keep this up if you're going to have the effect of that spirit. But if you want to be continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit, there are things that you can do. Pursuing the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Well, being filled with the word of God, pursuing submission and surrendering to him in those areas of your life that you don't want to give to him, confessing sin that you've committed. You just offended your roommate with that whole video game, popcorn, kitchen sink situation. You can confess your sin and restore and renew your relationship, not only to your roommate, but also to God. All of these things help in this pursuit of being filled with the Spirit. Also, Christian fellowship. I don't know how this works. This falls under that category of the things I know not. But being around other believers, I have experienced countless times being around many of you all, that when it's time to go back home or when the event is over with, after spending a day together in Christian fellowship, I feel as though God himself is with me. But it wasn't God himself in that sense. It was, it was y'all. But it was God himself. It was the spirit of Christ among us. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, there's another reference. I'm not sure where it is. Oh, it's um, John 7, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's a lot to unpack right there, and I'm not going to even attempt to get into all of it. But when Jesus is glorified, when Jesus is ascended into heaven, which is referenced in the song, See the Conqueror, which we sing Sunday and this, tonight, when Jesus ascends into heaven and it is under, receives his coronation, it's described in Acts 2, his crowning ceremony of the beginning of the already not yet reign of Jesus, King Jesus on his throne, what happens then is the Father gives the Spirit and pours out the Spirit upon his church. And then from that point, everything changes. So he who believes in me, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So why is it that my experience with many of y'all after spending, oh, let's just say a Saturday, starting out out at Planned Parenthood and then moving on to the diner, whatever it's called, cozy or something, soup and burger, and then going from that to like the next thing and then like, oh man, I got to go home. It's like two o'clock. I got to work on the sermon. I got to go like lock myself in my office and work. But heading away from that experience, feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, why is that? Because these verses are true. Because out of you flows the Holy Spirit. And what is that? Well, it's, it's refreshing. 
It's encouraging. Not leaving you feeling absolutely drained, but feeling uplifted and encouraged and ready to charge the gates of hell. This is not exceptional, by the way. This is normal. This is ordinary Christianity. This is not the stuff of superheroes. Um, Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but that water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It will have impact on those around you. Um, Another question from this topic. How does our relationship to the Holy Spirit differ from that of the Old Testament folks? Well, I have a book for you, Giselle. God's Indwelling Presence by Jim Hamilton, James M. Hamilton, the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments. And I even have a copy right here. So I recognize that you are not here tonight, Giselle, but you're going to be watching online. If you would like to borrow this book, you can because it's out of print now. Don't sell it. It's going for like 90 bucks right now. Um, Do you have a copy as well? Or you want to borrow it? Can you bring it back on Sunday? Uh, no. Because no, uh, she uh, asked about this, but um, you all are my witnesses. Alan, come get it. Alan is not going to keep this forever. He's going to return it. So how does this Holy Spirit differ in Old Testament versus New Testament? Uh, Dr. Hamilton is one of the professors uh, from Southern Seminary. I never had him for class, but I, we had plenty of conversations. Um, solid guy, conservative, not woke. Um, probably about 50 years old, I guess. Uh, question three, does he communicate with us in ways other than illuminating scripture? If so, how do we grow in discerning his voice? Well, I'm so glad that I got ousted from the, the, the documentary um, cessationist. Um, what? Really? <laughs> no, I'm not that glad, but um, there's also a part of me that is glad because in my whole interview, for those who don't know, there's a documentary coming out in like a week or a couple weeks called Cessationist. I was interviewed for it and in an hour, hour-long interview, hour and a half actually, I spent most of my time talking about what I believe the Holy Spirit does do. Whereas the framing of all the questions was, so what's, what are the abuses of the Holy Spirit? I would much rather talk about the truth of the Holy Spirit rather than the faults of the Holy Spirit. Um, So, does the Holy Spirit communicate with us other than illuminating Scripture? This is tricky, okay? It's (laughs) difficult to answer that question. Um, The whole, like, oh, God told me that stuff is, is sheer nonsense. Does the Holy Spirit guide us in slightly less than tangible ways? I think so. Should we be focusing on that? No. Should we be looking for signs and wonders? No. Does the Holy Spirit confirm things to us in fleece-like ways? I think he does. Does he always I don't think he does. Have you ever heard the audible voice of God? Maybe. 
Do I expect that? No. Was it the voice of God or was it a guardian angel? I don't know. Do you believe in the supernatural? Yes. Can we lose or ever be separated from the Holy Spirit? Well, no, we can't lose the Holy Spirit if we're a Christian, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And we can certainly build up uh, obstacles around ourselves that prevent, uh, they, they fog the lenses on our glasses. We can certainly do that, and we do that when we sin. Will the Holy Spirit still indwell us in heaven, or will Jesus' direct presence um, remove that need? Um, I don't think that we will need the Spirit's indwelling in heaven because Jesus' direct, direct presence will be there. But I don't, um, I don't remember a chapter and verse reference on that, so I'm uncertain. Um, moving on, question six, marriage, what is, sub, um, what's, uh, what is submission in marriage versus what is not? Um, my short answer, which is not that short, but my short answer is that it's a heart posture or an attitude or a disposition of honoring your husband that contrasts with the heart posture of the contentious woman in Proverbs whose heart posture is to conquer her stupid husband, who she has no respect for. Like, these are literally the options, okay? You're either a submissive wife or a contentious wife. And the contentious wife has waged war on her husband because she thinks he's an idiot, and she's trying to conquer him because she's, she's supposed to be in charge. Um... So the contrast to that is this heart posture of seeking to honor your husband. If you have that heart posture, when it comes time to actually implement it, it's not going to be a problem because you actually respect or have a positive view of your husband. You don't think he's stupid. You don't think he's an idiot. And so the fact that he said, hey, I don't think it's going to work out for us to go on that trip on those days and here's my eight reasons, like that's not going to cause you to spiral because you honor him, you respect him. Now, uh, the problems in troubled marriages are somewhat narrow in scope. I actually don't think these things are like wildly complicated. I think that they come down to sin. I had a whole sermon on this from a while ago about like what, what's the problem with us. Well, the problem with us is sin. Now that we answered that, we can all just go on to not sin anymore. So there's his sin and her sin, and then there's a combination of both his and her sins. Which means all these problems come down to an issue of sanctification. Which the way a Christian is sanctified is the same, regardless of whether it's a man or a woman, old or young, married or single. And so the solution is basically the same, and we don't actually need to make this terribly complicated. But on my outline, the combination of both his and her sins, sometimes perhaps it might be 50-50 or 60-40, but in my opinion, it's very rare in a Christian home to have pretty evenly divided serious problems. Sometimes the ratio is so uneven that the con uh, contribution of one spouse to the problem is negligible. 
if it's 80, 20, 90, 10, those types of ratios, if something like that is going on where one person is doing nine really, really bad things and the other person is doing one really bad thing and then they go to a counselor, they seek help, the one who did the nine is going to be pointing their finger saying, but you did this. But the reality is there was so little that they did, it's pointless to even talk about it. If spouse A does something sinful that harms spouse B every day for a hundred days in a row, then spouse B finally loses their temper and yells at spouse A. Then they see a counselor who tells them, well, it takes two to tango and that you're both at fault and you both need to apologize or repent. Okay, sure. But the ratio here is a hundred to one. And the sins of spouse B are irrelevant to the real issues. They were not actually a factor in any of this. Now, let's say that you in this room tonight have grown up in an idyllic idyllic home or a very peaceful home, practically perfect home. You may think that the types of scenarios I've described wouldn't happen or can't happen or they don't happen, and that people are basically programmable like a dog that can be trained. You know, if you just love them enough, then you won't have these problems. If you're just more submissive or if you're just a stronger leader, if you just do the right thing, you know, every woman will submit to a godly Christian husband, right? Well, no, people are not like dogs that can be programmed. You can do everything right and have things not turn out well. It's not as simple. Now, earlier I said it is simple. It is simple in that it's, it comes down to sin. But you can't control people in a, in a mathematical, formulaic type of way. So it is not that simple, but then it is simple because the commands given to us in the Bible, husbands and wives are each given specific commands, which are quite simple. These commands from God are in regard to the relationship with each other. A Christian marriage ceremony involves vows where the husband and wife make a covenant to obey Christ by honoring his command to do certain things. For example, they might be something like this. His vow, the husband's vow says, I'm going to love honor, lead, lay down my life to sanctify you, to sacrifice for you. Her vows might say something like, I'm going to love, honor, and obey. So the husband is making a commitment to lead his wife in pursuit of Jesus, and the wife is making a commitment to follow the leadership of her husband as he leads her towards Christ. Both are committing to love each other, and the definition of this love, because it's a Christian ceremony, is working with Christian definitions, which means that when you say love, you don't mean warm, fuzzy feelings or emotions, but you actually mean 1 Corinthians 13. I'm committing to be patient with you, and I will be kind to you, and I will treat you certain ways. This is my vow before God. Now, Christian marriages run into trouble for a few reasons. The first and most obvious is unequal yokings. And when I say Christian marriage, I just mean it loosely in a general sense. But that is, these unequal yokings, first off, are a believer marrying an unbeliever. Now, this believer married to an unbeliever typically is a Christian marrying a professing Christian who is a false convert. This type of thing happens all the time. And it happens more the more quickly you jump into marriages. The less time you've known the person, Another way that unequal yokings happen is when there's a significant difference in maturity or strength between the two. The image of yoke is not talking about eggs. It's talking about farms, which eggs are on farms. I'll grant you that. But it's talking about oxen. And so you have two cows, basically. One is big, one is strong. And here in this scenario, this, that is an unequal yoke. You can't plow like that. 
You need two that are of equal size and strength and stature and direction and mindset and everything. They have to be going the same way. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. And so in unequal yoking, it extends beyond just believer, unbeliever, but also strong and weak, fully grown, not grown. One has all four legs. The other only has three legs. And this is a cause of many problems in Christian marriages. My second point after unequal yokings, my second point is a spouse who won't obey God. Him, he, well, he won't provide, he won't lead. Might be lazy or passive. This is the more common characteristic these days. I mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago about being something in the water or the, 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 the depletion of men's testosterone levels and becoming much more passive. But in days past, it wasn't so much like this, and men had a much stronger tendency towards being mean or overbearing or cruel and actually being abusive. But I believe, my controversial opinion for the night, is that this has largely disappeared culturally in a post-Me Too world. Like a man who's abusive, sure, it exists, but it's dramatically reduced, unlike where it was previous generations. What is the tendency today is the passive husband, the passive man who doesn't do anything, just sits around. And this would be a sin against God. It's, a, it's not obeying God's instruction for a husband. The Bible says a husband who doesn't provide for his family is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So providing for his family is a command of God. Secondly, a spouse who won't obey God on the wife's side is she won't follow, won't listen, won't honor, won't respect him as a leader. This is ultimately the same sin as Eve's sin, which is that I'm going to rule over him. I'm going to be in charge. And then in a more escalated way, her sin being she's, she's mean, she's overbearing, she's abusive, she's cruel. This I believe, has increased culturally a hundred times due to the influence of feminism. So as men have become more passive, women have become more aggressive and more angry and more assertive, more domineering. My charismatic friends call it the spirit of Jezebel. And I think that there's a one-to-one correlation between the character and spirit of Jezebel and the culture that we see um, filling up counseling offices today. So Christian marriage is running into trouble. Moving on. Um, Christian marriages don't have to be hard. I think that this is a very bad thing that people say, oh, well, you know, you're a sinner and they're a sinner, so marriage is hard. Well, it's harder if you're stupid. It's harder if you're a rebel against God. It's harder if you're married to an unbeliever. It's hard if you're not in obedience to God. It's hard if you're not following Christ. But... This leads to first point number one, be careful who you marry. Don't fall for pressure from self-appointed matchmakers who may have good intentions but have zero discernment. This choice of who you marry is the most important decision of your life and must not be made under coercion, pressure, manipulation, or fear, fear of being alone. If you, a woman, marry a man who you genuinely respect, 
and you're willing to submit to him and to honor him and to love him through sacrificial service. And if you, a man, marry a woman who you're willing to love and to sacrifice yourself for, to lead her as you both follow Christ, in that scenario, these two individual lives become one as their souls are knit together with one unified mission with a unified purpose and a unified heart. When this happens, when two truly become one, which for whatever reason we think, oh, well, that's talking about sex. Okay, well, sure. But there's a thousand times more to it than that. Actually having union of soul and heart and faith in your religion. When this happens, when two become one, uniting in their passion, actually having the same heartbeat, the same life goals. I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. When both a husband and wife share that with the same purpose, the same beliefs, the same faith, they will not have these problems about submission or love. A wife who has the type of thing I just described does not have a problem with submitting to her husband. Why? Because they have the same heart. They have the same desires. Why would she go pick a fight with her husband? That just wouldn't happen. That would be like picking a fight with herself. You don't do that. You're not sitting there on the couch and being like, I think I want some ice cream. And then you're like, no, I don't want ice cream. And then you start like, like maybe if you've got schizophrenia or something, you're going to have like picking a fight within yourself. But that would be stupid. That would be ridiculous. So under the parameters, under the, the qualifications I just, just described, no Christian husband would be a tyrant to his wife, but would tenderly take her views and desires into consideration while still leading and exercising his authority. I recognize that it can be scary if you are trying to be a biblically-minded young woman and you're thinking like, okay, I'm supposed to submit to like whoever this guy is that I end up married to. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it is kind of scary which is why you need to include all of the qualifications that I just spent five minutes giving. But if those qualifications are there, it's not going to be a problem. Also, under these parameters, no Christian wife would have a problem um, submitting to her husband's leadership because she actually respects him, because they're one in soul. They're going the same direction. Now, am I overstating this? Have I overstated all of these things? I don't think I have. I don't think it's an overstatement. We'll take a step back and just say, women, do not marry someone that you're going to wage war on until you've conquered him. If you marry someone with that agenda, yeah, your marriage will be awful. And you'll just be so confused and frustrated because you're denying what's going on in your head about why this is so awful. Elevate character and elevate faith in your list of priorities for what you're looking for. And lower physical characteristics in terms of priority. I'm not saying looks don't matter. But often the first thing we're concerned about is certain physical characteristics. But what we need to be concerned with first off is issues of faith and character. What type of person is this? And that's one of the biggest problems with the uh, self-appointed matchmakers. They don't know any of that. All they know is, oh, they would look cute together. Hey, go talk to that girl. 
So get rid of the placing importance on skin tone or facial structure or body type or hair color. That stuff is stupid. It has no point. There's no relevance to being like, oh, well, I have to marry a blonde or I have to marry a brunette. Like, I personally know a lot of guys who will only date a 10, but they're a four on a good day. And they're not even rich. And they're all single. So that's my speech about marriage. Is that good enough? Are you pleased? All right. Moving on. Advice for young Christians. Either in, young Christians, either young in age or young in the faith. So these are just like off the cuff things that I thought of as I was. Uh, so wisdom that I wish that I knew, but I learned later on. Um, first, I have a lot of points here and they're not numbered, but I'll just say number one for now and then I'll lose count. Number one, find a church and commit to that church and don't leave that church over differences of stuff. I would tell myself that my younger self, find a church, commit to it, and don't leave over differences. I was a member of a non-reformed church during college. My pastor was basically an Arminian. I was reformed. But I was under his leadership for three years, and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And so let's say you're sitting here and you're like, man, I know Andy's like not into Christian nationalism, and I think Joel Webin is just the greatest thing since sliced bread. I would encourage you not to let that difference become a thing that causes you to want to leave and go to Messiah Reform Fellowship. And this is what I would tell my younger self. I would tell my younger self, don't leave the church that you're a member of over these types of differences. Number two, learn to submit to my pastor and stop caring what celebrity preachers say online. Just put the word out of your mind that is, well, pastor, John MacArthur says, like, just delete that from your vocabulary. Nothing against J-Mac. But none of, the, none of those men are your pastor. John MacArthur, Vody, Paul Washer, Steve Lawson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. While we're at it, stop upset. I would tell my younger self, 18-year-old Andy, stop obsessively listening to Paul Washer. Why? Because it made me extremely imbalanced. Literally, I listened to hundreds and hundreds of his sermons. There was a point where I had listened to every single sermon he had on the internet 10 times. He had like 400 at the time. Listen to all of them. I could quote them to you. It made me very imbalanced and very obnoxious. It caused me to make a lot of really bad decisions. Not like, not like bad in the shocking bad kind of way, but bad in the like, oh, that was oh, cringy. Bad decisions that took a solid decade to get out of my system. Some of the consequences of those actions will actually last a lifetime. Why? Because I ruined friendships. I ruined relationships. I treated people I sh ways I shouldn't have treated them because I had paradigms in my mind that I was applying to everybody based on a sermon that was preached in 2006 in Muscle Shoals, Alabama by someone who's not a pastor anywhere. Now, thankfully, I joined a church whose pastor told me I had to stop listening to Paul Washer and I'd already committed to join that church and so I did listen to him and I stopped. I, st I did listen to my pastor and I stopped listening to Paul Washer. He said, N -n you can't listen to him at all for six months. You have to find 10 other preachers to listen to. So I did, and it was good for me. That's what I needed, and that's what I tell my younger self. Uh, next, don't fear man, and don't concern yourself with the opinions of people who won't be in your life a year from now. 
Like that one's huge. And that's one that I'm still even now in the fall of the summer of 2023 trying to get through my thick head because I fear man. I fear the opinions of you. I fear the opinions of people in the church. But I I need to recognize that like, you know how easy it is for someone to pick up their phone and send me a text and be like, hey, pastor, I'm moving to Florida tomorrow. And so I need to really limit how much control I let people have over me who have no commitment, no long-term commitment. Like they can just leave tomorrow and there's no skin off, no, no sweat off their, I don't know, no, no skin off their teeth. Um, like they're just going to move on. And here I am, I made like life-changing decisions based on the opinion of someone who's just going to leave. So don't do that. Don't fear man. Uh, next, don't, oh, do take care of your physical health right now. I would tell my younger self, if you need to lose 40 pounds, do it. It won't get easier as you get older. Next, uh, I would tell my younger self, don't overshare your heart with people who don't have your best interests at heart. I have a tendency to overshare and I have a tendency to overshare with people who have harmful motives. And I would warn myself against that. Specifically, if I was telling my younger self what I know now, I would give my younger self names of people to just like, don't even talk to that person. But this is for you all, so hopefully you won't ever meet those people. Um, next, don't let idealism control you. By idealism, what I mean is this way things ought to be in a perfect world. Well, the Nine Marks book says that you need to have a plurality of elders. And I know you only have seven people in your church, but you better find a second elder or else it's going to be a whatever. Like, don't let that type of thinking control you. We don't live in an idealistic world, or in an ideal world. We live in the reality of things. And some, somebody's principle that they thought up in a, in a, Seminary context is, is not something that should be having a dominating impact on your life, but I wish that I was telling myself that five or 10 years ago. Next, go to God, get to know God for yourself through reading the Bible. When you know God's word, you become confident in your relationship with God, which then creates confidence in other areas of your life. And that's something that my younger self needed, needs to hear. And that's one of the antidotes to fear of man. Next, I would tell my younger self that it's okay to enjoy life. Younger Andy, please read the book of Ecclesiastes and embrace its message. It's okay to go on a nice vacation and enjoy the glass of wine, even though you don't like wine. It's okay. I didn't have my first glass of wine until I was about 25. No. How old am I? I'm 32 right now. And it was with BJ, my old neighbor, which would have been after you know, 2017, so six years ago. I didn't like it, and I still don't like it. But what I learned through that whole experience was something about the concept of enjoying life. That God has given us all things richly to enjoy, and it's okay. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to laugh, literally. Because that's what, like, listening to too much Paul Washer, you're just like, oh, I can't have any humor in my life. He doesn't say that, but that's the vibe. 
Next, second to last point, carefully cultivate friendships with true believers and then maintain and protect those friendships long-term. Invest in those. The number of my buddies from college who have left the faith is crazy high. These people were my friends because we had the same class schedule. Like, oh, you got the 8 o'clock English 102? Yeah, okay, so we're friends because we're in the same section of English. Like, there are better ways to make friends and to plan who you're going to be friends with. And in my case, even though I was at a fundamentalist Christian college, a lot of those people have come out as anti-Christian. They were friends because we had the same class schedules or the same interests, but we did not share in Christ. And so that's why I'm saying carefully cultivate friendships with true believers and maintain or protect those friendships long term. That is not something that I have grown up with. I did not grow up with family that really cared about friendships or valued friendships. Like as adults that you have friends with other believers, we didn't do that. We had relatives and we had business contacts and we had people in the church but the church people weren't our friends. We just saw them for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday. Service is an hour. You get like seven minutes on either side. Kind of come and go, hey, how's it going? Good, good. How's your week? Great. Praise the Lord. Let's go raise. And then you like, you're, you're in and out. And that's that. But I would tell my younger self to learn to cultivate friendships. And this is another thing that I learned from my former neighbor, BJ, that I'm discussing right now. Is he, I saw him place a priority on, on friendships. And then last and not least, don't judge people based on externals. I was one of the most critical, judgmental people I have ever thought existed. Like, like just trying to imagine a hyper-judgmental person, that was me my entire college time. Like, give me some grace here because, like, the number of rules we had was ridiculous. But, like, I embraced those rules and said, well, I need to follow these rules. So, well, okay, there's rules about the types of socks you're supposed to wear or not wear. Students didn't follow that, but I did. And I looked down my nose on the types on the students who didn't follow that because ankle socks were not appropriate because the rule book said so. Well, why? Because ankle socks are not professional um, business casual. They are casual casual, and you're not supposed to wear casual casual until a certain time of the day at certain locations on campus. But you have little Andy walking around college judging people because they're wearing the wrong, the wrong type of Sperry's, okay? Certain types of Sperry's were allowed and certain types of Sperry's were not allowed based on the thickness of the sole. Nobody cared about that, but I cared because I read the handbook. I swore a, a thing, on the, the, you had to sign a thing on the back page says, I agree to follow these rules. Then you tear it out and you turn it in. And so I'm like this little critical minion walking around campus thinking like, oh, well, there's, he's not a real Christian because he wears the ankle socks. It was ridiculous. I bet a whole bunch of those people are wonderful, godly, reformed Christians today. And they just like didn't even think about the sock thing. So I would tell my younger self, don't judge people based on externals actually get to know them. So that's what I have. Um, I don't know if there's any other questions, but it's very late, so I think we should be done. So let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Thank you for this series this summer, for the um, 
the, the help that it's been to me anyway to go through these things. And I pray that it would be helpful for uh, those who have been here. Um, I pray that you would bless us and encourage us. And I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.